You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. Hey, everybody. This is Wake Up Call, the podcast. I'm your host, Christina Previtt, and joining me today at the new edition of the Hashtag FemStem series, where we are showcasing incredible women in the STEM professions. We have Nilo Ramani, who is a software engineer, and she is going to talk to us about what exactly that is and how she has ended up doing that. Thank you, Nilo, for being here today. Thank you for having me, Christina. I'm super excited to chat with you. I know. I'm excited to chat with you too. So I just mentioned the FemStem series is a new one and you are actually the first guest on the FemStem series. So I'm excited about that. And really what I'd like to do with this series is, like I said, highlight women that are in the STEM professions, because as we know that there are a lot of men in those professions and we don't see the women quite as much, but they're out there. So thank you for also putting some awareness to this. Yeah, no, thank you for putting this together. When I read FemStem, I was just like, wow, that that's so clever. I definitely want to be a part of that. And you're right, it is a male-dominated field for sure. And I do have my fair share of, you know, stories. <laughs> so good. Yeah, I can't wait to get into that. So yeah. for people that are listening, can you just kind of explain what is a software engineer? Yeah, definitely. It's so hard to put like just a blanket term over what it is that we do. There are so many different concentrated areas within software, but I would say the easiest way to explain it is basically you being the person who tells a computer what to do. That's as simple as that. There's so many different ways to explain it. So just bringing it down to like programming or backend engineering or web development it's not one of those things. It's you basically as a person designing and engineering with a computer to, you know, build a product or a service. So is it the same as coding? Yeah. So coding is definitely a big part of it. There's a lot of portions of the whole engineering world that don't always involve coding, but yeah, coding is definitely the bulk of it, I would say. (laughs) So how did you develop an interest in that? I would say the first and foremost, most important thing is having that role model in your life. I do come from a family of engineers. I have an older sister who is an engineer. Um, And so just growing up, you know, she was well into her career when I was still very young. So I got to see that. It was so inspiring to me to see, you know, a woman kind of take charge and, and be a leader in a field. And I was like, Well, I really love math and science. I remember going into school and just loving math. Like I wanted to take the hardest math courses that I I could possibly find. I became competitive with myself when it came to math. So as a young kid, I just knew I wanted to work with computers and robots, hardware. I think I actually built my first robot when I was seven years old. It was out of Legos. My parents sent me to this little camp in the summer. And I remember thinking like, this is my idea of fun more so than just like playing outside. I I wanted to do cool things and and be what some people I guess would call nerdy. And then from, from then on, I always just felt like I thrived really well when it came to math. Like I took, I think calculus two in high school, I ended up wanting more of a challenge. So I left high school around 16 years old, started college and just threw myself into, you know, all of the technology courses I could find. And I I finally came across something that I felt like would cover everything I wanted to do, which was electrical engineering. So that's what I studied for my undergrad. And what I loved about it is you're still doing the computer programming aspect of it. You're still learning a lot of coding, but you also get to see like the fruit of your labor because you're coding and then you get to see a robot move and you get to, you know, put circuit boards together and figure out what's behind all these machines that we're using. So that's, that's pretty much why I've stayed in this path and I love it. I love how you say you get to, because it's <laughs> like indicates that it's something exciting for you. And I, I think when I was a kid, I, I don't know why, but I, I was sort of afraid of math and science and, you know, I don't want this to turn into a whole like, you know, my, my psychotherapy session, but um, 
something that strikes me about you is your parents really encouraged you to pursue that. They didn't just, you know, say, oh, but you know, just play with your Legos or, you know, here's a doll, go play with that. Can you talk about that more? Like what was the environment really like when you were a kid? Yeah. So um, my parents hailed from Afghanistan in the early eighties. And so culturally there is a lot of sort of prevalence around education. So that was just something that was embedded into us. I have come from a family of six kids. So that was just something that was like embedded into us as children. And that was kind of like how you sort of almost made your parents proud, right? For us, they were, they were pretty extreme. Like, you know, these didn't, didn't cut it. You had to get A's. And I feel like because that was the bar, I just never accepted anything less. And of course there were times where it was really difficult and a lot of pressure. I won't lie, but academics just became what I revolved my life around and not just because of the, the pride aspect of it. Just, I loved learning. I loved being in the field. Like you, you called it when I say get to, I actually think sometimes I'm like, I can't believe I get paid to do this stuff. Like it's so much, it's so much fun. So yeah, I would say my parents played a huge role into it because to this day, they always encourage me to go above and beyond. They have never made me feel like I need to play a certain role because I'm a girl. They literally help push me to, to go above and beyond. And so, you know, having that backing at home where I had my siblings, you know, teaching me everything before I went into kindergarten, you know, after school and in, in the summers, I was encouraged to continue to learn more. So I think, you know, a lot of it is, it does start at home. Like when you have someone enabling you to go for a certain passion that you have, I think that definitely helps a lot. So. It absolutely does. It makes such a huge difference. And I was going to ask you who your role models were, but I think you already kind of answered that question. For sure. So yeah, um, I love that. Were you born in Afghanistan or were you born in the U.S.? I was born in the U.S. So not, not to go too much in family history. My father actually came and studied here as a foreign exchange student when he was 14. So he went to high school in Nebraska, I think. Um, or maybe it was Wisconsin. I know he went to school in Nebraska and Wisconsin. Then he went to um, an American university overseas. So he basically studied his whole life. He studied agriculture and botany, went back to home to work, married my mom. And then, you know, the corruption of the country, obviously at that point, it was the Soviet invasion that led them to literally take everything that was on their backs and walk to a different country. So they walked to um, what eventually took I guess a month maybe um, of them walking through all these weird areas to avoid Soviets and other communists finding them. So they essentially went through all these different back alley areas with two children, my older siblings on their um, backs and started over. So they, they literally went to a refugee camp and started from, from scratch. So one of the things about um, I would say the reason why I'm explaining that is because I feel like in order to understand why I'm so re resilient, no matter what comes into my way or why I push myself out of my comfort level. I always remember that, wow, these two people dropped everything for me and brought me here and continue to enable me put everything that they ever dreamed of aside. And so when you sort of kind of think about that, it really does kind of keep you going. You know, you don't take anything for granted for sure. Yeah, I was going to say that's what's striking to me about what you just said is a, a real sense of gratitude, not a sense of entitlement, a sense of real gratitude. Definitely. Um, I love that. I feel like I should have your parents come on, but that's another <laughs> conversation. <laughs> so tell me when I know you had these incredible influences at home. But having grown up in the American school system myself, you know, looking back on things, I can definitely see where there were times that girls were sort of encouraged to do certain things. Boys were encouraged in a different way. Um, you know, there's a lot of studies on the way that kids behave differently in the classroom. Like, for instance, boys typically are more willing to raise their hands and ask questions than girls. So what do you remember about your, I guess, grade school experience or, or beyond in terms of what teachers were encouraging you to do and maybe even what the other kids were doing? I was, and I will admit it, a very competitive kid when it came to you know, wanting to be the best at everything. Um, I always took pride in like wanting to know the answer or asking more to, to learn to get there. So I never had this like preconceived notion in my head that, oh, I, I'm going to stay quiet and let, you know, a boy answer instead. That, that was just never 
a thought in my head. I think naturally just wanting to be, you know, the person who understands everything, I think just drove me to, to wanting to be involved and, and participate. So did you, were there other girls that you were friends with that were, what is the expression, mathletes? Um, <laughs> like yeah, I think I had one or two close friends. Um, you know, I would be lying if I said that I enjoyed grade school. It was a very difficult time. I was not perceived as one of the cool kids at all. Um, you know, I have, my full name is Nilofar. So my name was different. I looked very different according to, you know, some other kids standards. So, you know, I, and of course I, I didn't like to do what everyone else did. I wanted to, you know, just be involved in, in the nerdy stuff. So I would say I had like one or two friends who, you know, naturally I was drawn to because maybe they understood me or because they also were very focused on their, their education. But yeah, grade school was definitely tough. I think just being a minority, being a female, trying to do something different. It's kids are just mean sometimes. <laughs> yeah, they are no matter yeah. what. For sure. For sure. Where did you live? Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Springfield, Virginia. So Fairfax County in, in Virginia, there's a pretty cool school system. And the funny thing is, is we are a very diverse area, like extremely diverse. So luckily after grade school, I've never had to deal with too many, you know, horrible instances of being perceived as different because I'm a minority. I mean, there definitely have been times where it's happened in my career, but I would say even though we, I came from such a diverse area, I definitely did you know, experience my fair share of, of fun drama from, from young kids. So, <laughs> yeah, well, it looks like you were able to uh, push through that yeah. just fine. So then tell me about when you were going to college, where did you go? And, you know, what had you kind of decided you wanted to be when you grow up at that point in your career? Yeah. So like I mentioned at 16 years old, I just had this epiphany that I had already finished all of my requirements for school. And I was like, I don't want to spend the next year with these mean kids, eh? And um, I, I just want to go to college. I, I want to go forward and, and become an engineer. So I, I, I kind of decided that towards the end of being 16. So my senior year was coming up. I remember going to my counselor and going to a few of my teachers. I actually had my AP Calc 2 teacher tell me, oh, that's a shame. You would have become an engineer if you stayed one year longer. <laughs> what does that even mean? I don't get it. I think their perception was, oh, you're, you just want to go out into the world and, you know, have fun. But my, I actually just wanted to go and, and move forward. I didn't think that that last year was really going to do me any good. I was already enrolled in um, college courses at our local community college. So what we have in Northern Virginia is we have a two-year transfer program where you can go and get accepted into a four-year uh, university after you do your first two years. And so I, I pretty much skipped the SATs and I, I went and enrolled. I started out studying IT just to kind of get my feet wet with understanding programming and the world of technology, then transferred to George Mason University, which is in Fairfax, Virginia, um, where I pursued and finished my electrical engineering degree. So you actually got in without taking an SAT. I did. And I mean, it, part of it was because I went to the community college first and it's a really great opportunity. I know some people perceive it as a little bit different, but what I loved about it is I was able to put myself through school. I worked two jobs while studying at, at the community college because I just wanted to um, ensure I didn't, wasn't taking up ton of loans. So it, it's a really great option for folks who are just trying to figure things out the first two years. And, you know, I, I ultimately got my degree from the four year university, George Mason. So to me, it was just, you know, a, a means to an end. And it, it was a great idea, I think. So it sounds like you also had a, a great deal of emotional maturity, because to be younger, were you you only had one year left in high school? I had one year left. Yeah. Okay. So, but still, when you went to college, you were probably the, one of the youngest ones there. I was always the youngest. Um, I was 17 when I started. I think I was 19 um, when I started the engineering program at George Mason, and I still felt like I was I was the youngest everywhere I was. So not only were you also a woman in a male-dominated field, but you were also younger. Yeah, for sure. Um, I was one of two girls in my graduating class, and I actually never met the other girl until the day of graduation. I saw her in the line. I was like, huh. <laughs> 
Wow. I wonder where you came from. <laughs> I wish I had met you before. Um, wow, I can't believe that. Do you yeah. know if the student body has changed since then? I, I hope so. Um, I do. I, I do notice that more women are starting to be less shy from the field or from just any field of engineering. So that's really encouraging. But I mean, I only, that was only a few years ago. So even back then for it to be, you know, one girl in all of these courses is still pretty crazy to me. So it's, I mean, it, it worked and it worked well for the most part. I feel like a lot of the my, my peers were usually very respectful. There were cases where I remember one girl telling me when I went to a testing center, she's like, electrical engineering? And I was like, yeah. She's like, do you flip your hair and let the boys do your homework? Ha <laughs> ha That's what? what I would do. I was like, uh, I, you know, I was just like, so I couldn't even come up with a witty response because I, I was just like, oh my God. I, I need to correct her. <laughs> I was like, no, no, absolutely not. If anything, you know, there are people who come to me for, for help and with questions. Um, please don't think that, you know, you have to be, you have to need a guy to help you if you're, you're studying engineering. That's not the case. You just need ambition and, and resilience. So see, that's that attitude right there that, that you got from her is exactly what I'm referring to when, you know, and I think, I can't pinpoint exactly where or when or what comment, you know, I've heard in over the course of my life and especially when I was younger in school that promoted that or perpetuated that. But I know it was there. I know that there was just this general attitude that, you know, boys were going to become engineers and, you know, they were going to take things apart and put them back together and 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 do things like that. And women I don't know what the women were going to do exactly, but mm -hmm. the, the men were doing those things. And it sounds like that girl, obviously she had the same attitude. Yeah. So, um, and I think what I would have said to her, well, at least I would have thought it is I would have been like, okay, well, that's why you're not an electrical engineer. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I mean, if anything, maybe we could spin it and say like, no, you can do this too. You don't, you don't need, I don't want you to think like that, you know? And yeah, you're right. It's, it's not only, we can't always just say it, it's men that, that think like that. If we have women still thinking like that as well. And I've, I've had that um, sort of reaction so many times where it's like, oh my God, engineering, you must be really smart. Um, and I just hope that, well, I mean, for one, that's a compliment, but I just hope that that's the same reaction you would you would say to a male who is in the field, not just to a girl because she ha she must be very smart if she's in the field. Um, no, I, I think that what needs to happen is a few things. Like we as women need to start understanding and normalizing that we can go and sort of branch out into what society perceives as normal for us and also just empower one another, you know? So one, one thing I like to do is, even though I'm doing engineering, I like to get involved in recruiting, like at my company. And one, one of the things I always say is, I want to, I would love to find more women. Um, I think just doing like small things like that, just trying to find, you know, a way that you can even help shape one more person's person's life. Or even if you can take and mentor someone, you know, even if you're only two years into your career, taking someone in and mentoring them so that they can also kind of break their way in, I, I think if we all do more things like that, then we can kind of solve this issue of, oh, it's so shocking to me that you're in this field and you're not doing what is perceived as normal for a woman. So, yeah, I'm with you totally there. And I, that's what I hope to do with this podcast, interviewing women like you and doctors and lawyers is, is sort of normalizing that and letting other young women who maybe haven't quite figured out what they're going to do with themselves yet. They can, look at someone like you and say, well, I never really thought about going into engineering, but let me look into that. Or especially because we're the ones that are going to be influencing the, the young girls, you know, in grade school. And I want those girls to not even have anything in their head that would suggest that they can't do it or that they're somehow different because they want to be a software engineer or a doctor or whatever it is. So I love what you're doing. Yeah. And I think that was one of the reasons why, like, I'm a pretty reserved person, but a few months ago, one of the reasons why I wanted to just 
start kind of going on social media and talking about what it is that I do, because I, I sort of feel like I've been sort of blessed with all these opportunities. And I, I want to give back if even one person sees like, oh, she can do this, like she can break through. And these are really tough subjects. She, you know, I can maybe I can do it, too. If one person benefits from that, that's that would mean the world to me. And I think it's more than just engineering. It's also in the medical field and the law field, you know, those are, are also male dominated fields. Um, although I feel like women are starting to hopefully dominate medical school, but I still think that there is room in, in all fields for women to sort of, sort of start kind of breaking in and trying to be less of the minority and normalize, you know, we are also in this workforce too. We're also striving to be the best we can be. Yeah. I feel like I, I, I don't know if it's like a little off color to share this story. I hope it's not. But I remember when I was in college, which I'm a lot older than you, um, like 20 ish years ago, there was a guy that I knew who was in, at the Rutgers engineering school. And somehow the subject came up whether there were any girls there. And he said, yeah, there's a couple and they all have a beard. <laughs> so that was, you know, and it seemed funny at the time, but you know, it, it, but again, you know, the implication there was, you know, that they were somehow, um, you know, substandard or inferior to him. Yeah. But that was that was sort of the attitude. And, yeah. you know, I'd kind of love to maybe spend a little time on a college campus now and kind of see what the attitudes are by the students there. If there's still that sort of attitude that, oh, there's no girls in the engineering school. Oh, yeah. That is there. Um, oh my God. The amount of times I would like pass by people's laptops in school and see like no hot girls in engineering, like those memes that they would post everywhere and basically say like, Oh, this is the worst major to be in. Cause there's no girls. Um, so yeah, that those are, are definitely still there. Um, I think that, yeah, I, I mean, that story in itself is a testament to the fact that people perceive a group of people of having to look or be a certain way. Yeah. So then tell me what your college experience was like. Were you still, you were still the, the only girl, Well, you said you graduated and there was only one other girl in the engineering program. Yeah. Um, maybe she had like, you know, just attended the ceremony after already finishing. I never really ran into her very much, but my college experience was overall a very positive one. Definitely the most challenging time of my life has been, when I'm studying <laughs> both for like my bachelor's and master's there, as much as I take so much pride in finishing those degrees, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that it didn't, it wasn't easy for me. There are times where I felt like I was failing. There are times where I felt like I had to study two extra weeks more than everyone else. Like some of the, the people I worked with were just like, Oh yeah, I'm going to cram the day before. And I was like, I would fail. I, I need to go in and like, you know, use that muscle in my brain and train it to understand these concepts. And you have to love what you're learning. Otherwise that can be very tedious and very difficult and very kind of just like unmotivating. But I loved it so much that I was like, okay, I don't have this computer brain that maybe some of my peers have, but I'm going to spend the extra two weeks to lock myself in a library and, and just learn everything that I can. I was definitely the girl that showed up in her pajamas to like my labs and classes. Like I was just my, my head was down. All I wanted was from, from college. All I wanted was that degree. I didn't really develop like a huge like circle. I know a lot of people find themselves and go and join clubs. It, it was really all about the, the degree for me. And I don't want to say that's necessarily a good thing for everyone, but if you are passionate about what you're learning, then, you know, more power to you. Did you have a dream job? Was there something that you really had your sights set on? My dream job is, it's crazy. It's something that to this day, I still am learning about myself. It, it's always been making an impact. Some people say, I want to be a CEO. Some people say, I want to start a, a startup. I want to become a partner. For me, I don't necessarily care about the title. I don't necessarily care about anything aside from, I, I want to build cool things and be a part of something big, if that makes sense. So, you know, yeah, I've always wanted a really cool job. I mean, I've, I've been very blessed with having different opportunities. I've gone on different roles where I've been able to travel for these roles. Um, I've been on like 
you know, the, the commercial end of software and then also working with software in the federal government, which is very cool because you're working on all these sort of mission critical projects with the Department of Defense. So, you're, you know, you're also making a huge impact for your country. I've been, yeah, I've been blessed with just many different opportunities. For me, the most important thing is loving the actual technology I'm working with. I don't really get too stuck on like a name. Um, like some people, their dream job is, you know, at one of those big tech companies. I'm not necessarily like that. I don't get too attached to a name because you could have that name, but not necessarily be happy about the work that you're doing. I would rather be working for a no-name company, but building something really, really cool. Um, because I, I think that it's just more satisfying and beneficial when you're actually loving what you're doing, not just, you know, hiding under this umbrella of, oh, I work for so-and-so or I, yeah. I work for this. So I, I just go where the passion like leads me essentially. So when you finished undergrad, what was your passion? What did you apply for? Um, to be honest with you, when I finished undergrad, I wanted a year and a half of like just traveling and finally being social. Cause I feel like I was so out of the loop. I mean, all my friends and family had officially just wrote me off as that person who's always in a library. So it's like, I just want to feel alive and kind of enjoy my twenties. Um, so I, I would say I, I was very fortunate because I had an internship, um, in the last year of my senior year. Um, so I went into Booz Allen Hamilton, they're a consulting company. They're, they're a pretty big consulting company. And um, it, it was a very great opportunity because they sort of helped me figure out and pave the way for what I wanted to do pretty much forever, which is like the exact sort of um, discipline within software engineering. What were you doing for them? I was hired as a software engineer. I got to work on a lot of cool projects, like from building prototypes for the Department of Transportation. Like I got to work on a cool um, electronic vehicle um, application prototype. I got to work on um, some other projects, like for different government agencies where you're essentially going in and, you know, a lot of these government agencies, they're working with like legacy and older tech systems. So you get to be a part of modernizing those platforms. So bringing in, newer ideas, newer technology. If you're talking about the tech world, you know, someone might think like, oh, that's not like Silicon Valley stuff, but it's more or less this, the same. You know, I think everyone has this perception of, especially in the tech world, that Silicon Valley is like where it's at. But the be beauty of being in the tech field is you can pretty much be making that impact everywhere, whether it's something like, you know, modernizing old systems for the federal government or, you know, going and working for an oil and gas company, which I've done before and helping them modernize. I love the field because it literally, it literally is applicable everywhere you go. Yeah. Uh, well, everybody needs software now. I mean, every yeah, company, for sure, every entity needs it. So can you give us a few examples of some softwares that you built? Sure. Um, without getting into like too low level nerdy, um, examples, I would say, so the, the bulk of the work that I do is sort of coming in and bringing more modern, like a more modern tech stack to a service or a, an organization or, you know, a, a government agency. So I would say that the platforms that I've really built have essentially helped these different organizations streamline their processes. So that requires you coming up with you know, better architecture for them that requires, you know, you sort of writing code to rewrite everything they're doing, migrating things to the cloud. I don't know if you've heard a lot about cloud technology, but essentially people used to have racks and rooms of different servers. And now you don't have to do that anymore. You can move everything over to the big cloud companies like AWS, Google's cloud, um, Azure. And so I come in as the engineer who helps you know, these different organizations get to that place where you can actually go in and be scalable. You can build a robust system that someone can't hack into. Um, you know, you can build a system where maybe someone's writing code and they want to push that update to their, their website right away. One example is like on Black Friday, you know, if you don't have engineers kind of ensuring the integrity of your system, your, your system can in entirely just crash. And that, that causes loss of business, loss of sales, angry customers. And so I would say the bulk of the work that I do is in ensuring things like that get prevented. So, you know, other engineers can do their work. So customers and other employees can basically always have access to their system. 
So you're actually going into companies that aren't just buying some kind of software. They're actually building it for their company. So are you coming in and building it from the ground up? Are you part of a team or are, do you ever come in because maybe they had someone else who didn't do such a great job and now it sort of has to be fixed? That's happened a few times. I feel like where I usually come in is because they basically need an engineer to help automate processes for them. So, you know, this, this example of like, let's, for example, let's say something is just working very slow. Like this is a very slow process. I have to get up personally, hand deliver these files somewhere, you know, or I need to basically write an application, but it just takes way too long to actually put that into production. That's where someone like me comes in and helps build that strategy, that um, capability from the ground up. So one example is, you know, I also work as a developer, but let's say a developer is building a web application. So let's say, you know, you're, you're starting up a, a retail store, like you want to sell clothing and, you know, you hire a developer who actually builds that website for you. So as a customer, when you go on www, you're basically seeing the code that that developer wrote. So like, let's say www.pinkclothes.com. So, you know, someone's going into that website and they're seeing the code that that person had built, but that code, how is that reaching you? How, where is that living? How am I ensuring that someone can't hack into it? How am I ensuring that a thousand people can reach it at once? That's where I come in and help the developer figure out where you can safely put your code, essentially. I think the example I had given you when you and I spoke privately a few weeks ago was when Kylie Cosmetics had her when she she first launched like years ago her site crashed when the first time she went live so something like that obviously somebody didn't maybe didn't anticipate how popular it was going to be but something went wrong there right yep and that's exactly an the example and the epitome of loss of sales like frustrated company frustrated employees frustrated customers so it is a very, very important and impactful place to be because you are also at the forefront of ensuring that the rest of the organization can run smoothly. So, you know, I've worked on things like database migrations and that's people's information. I've worked on, you know, migrating applications that were already built by other people onto different platforms. And so there's a lot at stake and you really have to ensure that you're continuously educating yourself to make sure you understand the system as a whole. So I'm not someone who just needs to learn one coding language. I'm someone who I need to understand multiple coding languages. I need to understand multiple different databases, different type of different types of software. Um, and then like the cybersecurity aspect of it. And that's why I think I love the sort of software engineering that I do because I get to be learning about everything. And I think I mentioned as a child, I just wanted to know a lot of things. <laughs> I love that. So I actually was trying to go in and register my mom for a COVID vaccine and she's a essential worker. So I, I go onto the website and they were like, yeah, start the morning of, um, you know, January, Thursday, January, what was it like 14th? Yeah. So yeah. They, they basically um, gave me the registration link and I, I went and signed up. I, tr- I tried to sign up and it says due to high volumes of traffic, we are currently down. And so there are people <laughs> who can't get their COVID vaccines because of technology. Like it literally affects everything. And I remember thinking like, I would never let that happen if they <laughs> hired me. So. so were you thinking, I mean, you don't have to get into the weeds, but were you thinking all they really needed to do was X, Y, and Z, and this wouldn't have happened. Yeah. I think, um, a lot of people, the way that they deploy software nowadays is, you know, just assuming that they're going to have a normal amount of traffic and the default settings of all the sort of like servers and machines that they're using are going to be okay. But if, unless you're outsourcing your, um, your IT or your, your engineering capabilities, things like that are inevitable. So yeah, you know, back to your Kylie example, I'm sure now she probably has a team of engineers or has outsourced to a team of engineers to ensure that her website is is always up no matter what, especially during a big launch day. Yeah, I don't think I've heard of that happening since then. It definitely happens on like d- various different websites I've noticed, like people who are selling things that have nothing to do with technology. They, they're just trying to, you know, get things on a website. They don't think that it's going to crash, but it, it definitely still happens. 
So you said that you're a site reliability engineer. Yes. So that's basically what you do, right? You make sure it doesn't crash. Exactly. It's building reliable systems. And the term like DevOps from she DevOps comes from development and ops. So at one point in time, um, in the old days, people would just sort of keep developers and operations separately. And so what I do is kind of bridge that gap. I'm the person who helps do both. I need to understand all the underlying systems and responsibilities of other people around me to make sure that you know, everything kind of uniformly comes together. And is this just your responsibility or is there a team of people that are doing it? There's teams of people. And this is a field that everyone is starting to adopt. I mean, I'm talking even your, your financial companies, it's not just big tech. They're hiring teams and teams of um, what they might call DevOps engineers or site reliability engineers, or, you know, there's so many different names, like Facebook has a production engineer because they want to make sure things are up in their production environment. Um, You know, Google uses SRE. Some people use infrastructure engineer, automation engineer. Um, We we, we do so many things. It's like, you want to make sure that everything's reliable, but if everything is up, then you have the responsibility of continuously automating and making sure that things are always deployed seamlessly. And then also, what can I do to modernize my software? Maybe there's something I can make more secure. Maybe there's something that, you know, I can automate so I never have to do that again. Um, So an example is like, if you need to automate the um, security scanning of a few servers, then you don't need to go and do that manually. You can just write some code and and have a system or what we call a pipeline do that for you. So. So you went back to school to get your master's. I did. And why did you do that? It's a good question. A lot of people ask me that. Um, so it's funny in tech, you actually don't really need to go to college anymore. Um, there are a lot of people and some of the most brilliant people that I've met who, you know, never went to college and they're just brilliant engineers. I think that with passion and wanting to learn, you can definitely pick up everything, you know, to be an engineer on just like self-learning there's different certificates, free courses like YouTube. I mean, there's a world of information out there now and you don't actually need a degree. Um, The reason why I continued down the path of education is because again, I wanna be a part of something big. I don't necessarily like just doing my work and clocking out at five. Like my, because my passion and my career are sort of like married, it's my, my goal is to continuously love what I do. And so I need to understand more than just the one tool that I'm working with or the one language. So I did electrical engineering and there were still some things that on the computer science side that I didn't get a ton of exposure to. So I wanted to kind of be a computer science expert. So I went back for my master's in computer science and that helped me also understand like those crazy algorithms people talk about, machine learning, artificial intelligence, um, you know, the, the fun subjects that everyone you always see on the news um, that are actually being used every single day, but just kind of understanding in more depth what each of those, what, what the math is behind them, what the theory is, so that you can take that and apply it to your career or, you know, your other projects that you have going on. So that was my goal is to kind of just become an expert about, about everything about me, because, you know, in any career, you're not always going to be, for the most part, doing the same thing, especially in software. Like there's going to be times where you you get a new role and you have to learn a, a different piece of software. So it's really important to not just, you know, sort of silo yourself to one one language or one program, one um, one piece of software, one tool. You, you need to continuously learn and make sure that you're sort of you understand the world of technology around you because you are impacting different pieces of it. It seems like it's changing all the time too. It's always changing. It's, it can be very sort of almost stressful if you're not careful about like kind of mitigating how much pressure you put on yourself. So if you're the kind of person who is super high functioning and you're an active learner, you can put a lot of pressure on yourself because you'll, you'll hear about a tool and you're, you're like, Oh, I need to go master that. But then you're also trying to master the five other tools you're working with. So it it is constantly evolving. I mean, the world of software, if you look at like Silicon Valley, everyone is just continuously building these brand new ideas, concepts, these new technologies, and just trying to understand what else is out there is like an everyday job. Where do you live now? Are you in California? 
No, I am in Fairfax, Virginia. So in the Washington DC area. Okay. So you went home. I'm home or stayed home. (laughs) Do you have any plans to get a PhD? No. (laughs) Well, that was a quick no. No. (laughs) I remember, um, my family was teasing me. They're like on my graduation day, PhD. I'm like, no, <laughs> not happening. I think I've, I think I've done what I needed to do to like understand the things that I want to understand. I think if you want to go for a PhD, you need to ask yourself, why are you doing this? Are you trying to be um, in a research environment? Are you, you know, going for a specific job? For me, especially in software, I already feel like. I didn't have to do my master's. That was just out of my like curiosity and yearning for more knowledge. No more. I'm done. (laughs) What did you do when you took that year and a half off after undergrad and you said you wanted to travel? So I um, traveled. I have two sisters um, who are at the time also single girls um, just working like me. And um, so I have a twin sister and then my older sister, we would just like randomly go different places. So we went all over Europe. Um, we went to Japan. Um, we, I, I'm, I was at least one of those people who loved uh, history and like just the buzz of a, a new city and town. So when I travel, I'm, I'm not the beach bum. I'm the person who wants to go see a certain building or a certain museum. And they're also like that. So it was great because I had like the perfect travel buddies to go everywhere with. Where was your favorite place that you visited? Oh, that's so tough. I feel like it changes all the time. Um, I would say one of the places that really sort of left an impact on me were I would say like two of them. One of them was definitely Japan because it's not only on the opposite side of the world, but it's so crazy. I mean, you, you get so stuck in your own routine and world and, and you don't realize there's a whole world of people out there um, who speak different languages than you, who have different practices than you. And the culture is just, oh my God, it's such a rich history. I mean, we went to these different gardens and these different temples and just the beauty, the serenity, the peace, like Kyoto and Tokyo were just so beautiful to me. Um, So that definitely made a lasting impression for sure. And then just honestly, if I had to pick a second one, um, I would pictures all of Europe. It's so difficult because I mean, I've been to Switzerland, um, Turkey, I've been to Germany. And what I love about the European lifestyle is not only does it also have that rich history, but they're so different than us, you know, like we are so work driven. I know I am, and they're not like that. You know, you would just be walking around on a Tuesday and see people, just casually having lunch. And it wasn't like your, your corporate folks who were on a lunch break. They were just having lunch <laughs> and yeah. nothing to do. And to me, I'm like, wow, that's so crazy. It's so different than what, you know, we do here. I've heard that from people that live in Europe, that you're kind of weird if you were to sit at your desk and have lunch because yeah. nobody does that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I think we need to be, we need to be more like that here, not be so focused on work yeah. all the time. Yeah. I tried to go to my kitchen to eat lunch now. <laughs> well, that was a little different. So do you have any secret fantasy of building your own software, like something that you would sell? I do. Um, and there is this whole sort of kind of rat race for people in tech to become a founder and become a CEO and make a name for yourself in tech. Um, yeah, I would love to be a part of that and make that sort of, you know, established name in my career, not just for the name, but the satisfaction of I built this, um, especially when you hear stories of like Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg and how, where they came from and what they were able to build that excites so many people. Um, but I'm also a realist, you know, like, I think it's 90%, maybe that must, I, I don't know where I got that statistic from. I read it on a random article, but I read somewhere that 90% of startups can fail. Um, And so I think that in order to be part of that 10%, you really need to become a seasoned engineer. And also there's luck involved as well. So for me, I want to make sure that I, through my career, firmly understand what it is that I would want to contribute before I get there. Because for me, it's not like the whole, I think a lot of people just want to work for themselves and that's great. That's wonderful. But yeah, that would be ideal. But for me, it's like, that's not why I want to 
want to build something that it's, I want to build something to make an impact. I want to find a gap somewhere and then go and act on it, especially in like more maybe later terms or times in my career where I actually feel like I've become somewhat of an expert, then I can go in and confidently say, all right, I have been working in this field for enough years. I know exactly what's missing. I know exactly what's going to be big next and then, and then move forward. So um, I try not to let that pressure of like seeing all these like young founders kind of get to you because yeah, it does take a lot of grit and a lot of um, risk taking, but for me, I want to make sure I'm actually contributing something and not just doing it for my own personal reasons. So that's great. I love that. Well, you're very lucky to be able to say that you love what you do and you can't, oh, I can't believe people actually pay me to do this. I mean, not too many people can really say that. Yeah, there are definitely um, the pros and, and cons for doing what I do. Going back to like the male dominated field, you know, you definitely have this sort of I don't know, sometimes I don't know if it's me or I don't know if it's the people around me, but I always feel like, especially in the beginning of my career, like I had to prove myself. So getting through those challenges can sometimes be a little bit of a struggle, but um, when you love what you do, it really does help kind of make up for the rest of it. For it sure. sure does. I think Katie Couric once said, you don't have to love what you do every day, but you should love it most days. Exactly, exactly. And I tend to agree with that. Because think about it, we spend most of our time at work. Yeah, we really do. Um, and I do like to kind of go offline, enjoy time with family and um, sort of try and, and be social. But yeah, you're right. The majority of what you do is at work. And so you need to make sure that you're in not only a healthy working environment, but you also you love what you do for sure. And so what is the makeup at work now? Is it, are, Would you say that women are still a minority where you are? Yeah, there are definitely times where I feel like, especially coming into new roles that you're like, oh, she's a girl. I mean, no one's ever said that to me. I will say that. But I do. And sometimes I'm like, am I being paranoid? Are they actually doubting my skills because I'm a girl? Or is this my form of imposter syndrome? And that's a whole different tangent. I've definitely had to battle that before. And it's Part of it is you thinking a certain way and part of it is also your environment because um, tech in general has such a, what I call, what a lot of people call bro culture. So if you've ever watched shows like Silicon Valley, it's, you know, guys in their sweatshirts, you know, coding out. And I don't fit that. I don't fit that kind of picture of what a tech person or technical person looks like. And so that does contribute sometimes to imposter syndrome, but I've been able to kind of battle through, through it because when you do work hard and you do get that good feedback, feedback, you're like, okay, you know, I, I can do this. I can kind of work through it. Um, you know, I, I, I really, I think I can maybe count one or two other women I've worked with as far as on an engineering team. I think, yeah, one, <laughs> um, I'm always usually the only girl and it's something that I have now started to speak out about. So I'll speak out about it like during um, interviews, the first thing I ask is how many, are there women on your, on your team? Is, does your leadership have women? Are there people who look like me on your leadership? Because again, I'm not necessarily obsessed with a certain name. I, I want to know, especially now in my career, I've become very picky with the people I work with and the roles that I work with um, because I want to know that there is going to be an advocate for me. There is place, a place for me. Um, so yeah, there, it definitely still does shock a lot of people that I work with that I love this so much, but you know, in the end you do kind of win them over. I still do wish that those preconceived notions were not there, that it's like, okay, you don't need to be questioned more because you're a girl. But at the same time, I do want to highlight that I've had a lot of sort of very respectful male peers. I try to see them as like my allies and, um, you know, I'm now to the point where a lot of them, I have team, a team working for me and they come to, with, to me um, with questions all the time. So I feel like that's kind of helped battle the imposter syndrome and make it so that, okay, I don't need to keep trying to prove to people that just because I'm a girl, I am technical. I can do these things. I can code. I do understand what the guys understand. Um, I, but I still feel like that there is a, a reason. Um, there is a, a book by Malcolm Gladwell called Blink, the, the Power of Thinking Without Thinking. And the reason why I love reading those kind of books is because they teach you about like behavioral patterns with 
you know, the people you're interacting with. And a lot of times it, it teaches you that that instinct that you're getting, that hunch that you're getting is sometimes very, um, you know, it's, it's validated. It's you're feeling that for a reason. So mm-hmm. if I'm feeling that someone is kind of questioning me because I'm a girl, I work toward work to kind of push through it, but I would love to one day see that, okay, girls are not questioned. We, we are brought in because of our skills and we don't need to prove ourselves because we don't look like everyone else around us. Um, but yeah, there, there are really very rare. Um, it's very rare that I ever see a woman on my team. I've seen, I've had like female managers before, but as far as like female engineers, maybe it's cause I, I work in on the East coast and not in the West coast. I'm sure maybe they're probably a little bit better about it, but yeah, there is a very significant lack of diversity on, on the engineering teams that I've worked with. Well, that's interesting. It begs the question, is it because there just aren't like what we've talked about earlier, there just aren't a lot of women going into the STEM fields or is it, you know, because there's some sort of systemic discrimination that's happening that maybe people aren't aren't even fully aware of. I don't know the answer. I would say it's a combination. I have obviously seen a shortage of women entering the field, which is why I would love to be a part of encouraging them to go in, especially because like I said, you don't really need to go to college for this. If you are interested, you can self-teach yourself a lot of this. but I will also say that, yeah, there is that systematic sort of per- perception that, um, no, you know, I, I want to keep this like a, a bro sort of culture. And it isn't until someone points it out that people work on it. There have been a lot of times where I'm like, hey, why don't we think about hiring a woman or maybe a minority, uh, maybe a minority woman? And it does make people feel uncomfortable. I will say, like, I have asked, like, executives this question when I'm being interviewed, like, are there women on your engineering team? And I can always tell who's defensive and who actually wants to work on it. So there are people that are like, you know, because no one has a 50, 50 balance. So for you to tell me, oh yeah, we're great. We're great on women. We got it. I don't believe you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what does that even mean? I mean, I've had, um, so one time I, I dealt with an interview experience where I asked that question, is there room for women at this company? And it, it was just because everybody that I met was literally like, they looked the exact same to me. And the hiring manager came back to me and said, oh yeah, there's so many women, they're everywhere. Like we have women on all of my engineering teams. And I was like, okay, um, could I meet one and like talk to them? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the next meeting was still with the same other tech guy that looked like everyone else. So it's like, it's okay if you're, you're not there. And that's what I want to highlight. Like, I don't, the reason why I'm asking people that is because now I, I feel a responsibility and I used to shy away from it, mm-hmm. but now I'm like, no, I have a responsibility for, for bringing this to people's attention because maybe they don't know that I, I realize that I'm the minority and I want you to know, I realize, and I want you to continue to work on it. Um, and a lot of times when people say things like, yeah, that's something that we're working on. We have a women in STEM, um, you know, organization or women workforce organization at our company. And we have meetings and we always talk about it. That to me is like, okay, you're, you're doing your part. You're working towards it. Um, but yeah, if that makes you defensive, I would say you're probably not approaching it rightly. Right. Um, but if it makes you uncomfortable, that's okay because that's how you grow. So I think yeah. it's, it's a, that's a really bold question of you though, to ask. I think some people might be afraid to ask a question like that on an interview. It is. I remember almost shaking the first time I asked. (laughs) Um, Yeah, because it's it's something that you have to start questioning if you're if you want to make this better for other people. And the other thing I like to highlight is, okay, you may have women on your team, but are you promoting those women on your team? And that goes for every organization, not just tech companies. Are women written off because they might have a family or they have a family are they getting the same promotions that their male peers are when they're working just as hard? And that's something that you always have to question because you're, you're allowed that question, I think. Um, so yeah, after the first initial ask, which was really kind of intimidating for me because it was new territory. Now I, I just ask without even thinking. Now it's just normal. You're comfortable with it. Yeah. Exactly. I think it says a lot about them too. If they do get a defensive. It, it does. It says a lot about them. Um, and I think that, men also have a a part to play in it. Like they need to understand that, okay, if I have a female engineer I'm working with, how am I making her feel? 
being aware of your sort sort of actions, how you're talking. Um, I remember in one month I was called boss lady and which I obviously have embraced, but yes, um, and yes. In, the same, in the same month, someone else was like asking me about my work experience and they gave me feedback and their um, perception of me was I was um, not assertive enough. So I was like, wow, in the same month I've been coined boss girl, like boss lady and then not assertive enough. And so the old me early in my career would have taken that to heart, probably sat for two weeks thinking about why that person like thinks that and what I need to do to fix it. Now I question what actually makes people think a certain way, because I, I want to make sure that your feedback is validated before I accept that about myself. So when um, I was coined boss lady, two of my coworkers actually bought me a mug and a, and a water jug that said boss lady on it. So to me, it was funny because they were obviously, they were clearly communicating to me that they were making fun of people who, who say that about women. And they were just proud of my confidence at work, but to be called not assertive enough was interesting to me because I went back and this is a like C-suite executive of a really big company um, in Wall Street. And I went back and asked him like, so question for you, um, do you actually think that I'm not assertive enough because I'm not being bossy? And, and if I were bossy, what would, what would you call me then? You know, and those are the kind of things that you, people need to understand that sometimes when a woman is acting or doing things a certain way, we get these labels. But if a man was confident at work, if he was leading teams, we don't call him boss dude, boss guy. That's not normal. That's just a high achiever. And it's those patterns that I also am starting to realize I need to call out. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely snapped back a little bit at that person and said, you know, I think I'm a confident person. Um, you know, I think that a lot of times if women come on too strong, they are perceived as bossy. And he actually took a step back and said, oh, well, yeah, that's probably something I should look into. And I appreciate that. Like, I, I appreciate that he's like, yeah, I need to start understanding um, how I perceive women at work and how they feel perceived at work because they are the minority in many cases. So um, I think even giving just people feedback, even if they're your boss, it's, it's okay. Um, if, they get un if they get mad, then that's on them. Yeah. But if they get uncomfortable, hopefully they, they work on it, you know? Well, I think sometimes they're called a different B word. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Maybe behind your back, hopefully. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. Cause it would really be inappropriate to say it to your face, yeah. but, um, there's a mug or something that I've seen that I really like. It's, it says, I'm not bossy. I'm the boss. <laughs> and I think it goes to sort of what you're saying is that there are so many things that a woman can do in her career, especially if she, if she is a boss, if she's a supervisor that will be perceived very differently if a man were to do it. And I see this all the time because I own my own law firm and I own it with a male partner. Mm -hmm. So I have seen over the years how there are, are times where it's not just a coincidence and it's not something in my head where he's been treated very differently if he, he'll tell somebody to do something or tell them that, you know, they didn't do something correctly and they need to redo it. He's the reaction that he gets is often very different than the reaction that I get from the staff person. And this isn't for everybody. Like, I don't mean to say that this is everybody treats me differently, but there have absolutely been times where I was treated differently and it seemed that the perception was that I was being mean or that I was picking on them or, you know, that I was being the other B word. Um, yeah. Whereas if he said it, it was just like, well, he's the boss and he's just telling me to do something. So it's it's a thing. It's still there. I don't even I don't and I, I don't think it's just for men or women. Right? Like I think men feel this if they're your subordinate, but women do too. And sometimes I almost think it's worse with women. Really? Yeah. And, and that could just be my generation, but I, and I'm just guessing I could be wrong, but sometimes I think women, especially if they're older than me, they're, they've grown accustomed to having a male boss and that's what they're used to. So then when they have a female boss, it's sort of weird for them. Like they don't, quite know how to handle that. Like, who is this lady, you know, thinking that she can tell me what to do? 
well, it's the owner of the firm. That's who. So um, there's there's a lot going on. You know, there's a lot of subtext and and um, it's ha- doesn't always have to do with being a man or a woman. Sometimes it's generational. And I think you've touched on this. It, it says a lot about the person and what experiences they have had in their lives right. that are making them react that way to you. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, different personalities, maybe slight jealousy that, you know, you're giving them direction. It could be so many different things. And I think that we as women, and like I said, I consider the men that I work with my allies and my equal, and I I hope it's mutual. Um, They do have a responsibility to sort of be aware of their actions and perceptions at work, but we as women have work to do as well. Um, You know, for me personally, I always try to question like, am am I thinking that this person's perceiving me this way because of my own insecurity or is it actually what's going on? Um, And so you have to actually analyze situations before you sort of act on, you know, a decision that you've made of how you want to, you know, treat someone. And so, yeah, I, I definitely think that as women, we also have to work towards empowering each other. And that's why one of the things I always say is we, we can't say we just support women in tech or women in, you know, our field, we actually have to do it, even if it's something super small, like referring a woman somewhere. Um, mm-hmm. And she might be super smart and might, you know, you might be concerned she might steal your thunder, but that's that's still something you, you need to do because as women, if we want to get past some of these hurdles that we're facing at work, you need to come in and stop worrying about, you know, certain interactions with the women. You, you need to see everyone as your ally and and not think, oh, I don't want to listen to her or, you know, like in your yeah. case what happened. So, yeah, well, at the end of the day, you and I, as individuals, we can uh, you know, treat everybody with respect, try to be reflective on what we might be doing to contribute to a situation. And I've tried hard not to just always say, oh, they're treating me differently because I'm a woman. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. You're really never going to know. Um, but I use that as an opportunity to reflect on, well, how did I speak to them? You know, what did I do? And and really look critically, was there some, could I have said something in a different way? Could I have said something in a way that maybe um, was abrasive, you know? Um, But at the same time, I, I, if I start overanalyzing every interaction, then I just don't, I'm not effective anymore and, and I have to focus on my work. So it is a tricky balance. Yeah. Sometimes you have to go with your gut, but yeah, the, the fact that you're reflective and you also look at yourself to see if things could have been done differently or what may have contributed. That's, that's huge. Not many people are like, are like that. Most people don't want to reflect on, on their own actions. So um, I think if you are someone who can do that, taking that on is, is a good thing for sure. But you're right. Sometimes you don't want to be worrying. I don't always want to worry about like, is this person taking me seriously because I'm a girl? I just want to get the task done, uh, you know? Yeah. Well, I don't, I wouldn't say that I spend a lot of time thinking about it. I think about it when something happens and I'm sort of taken aback, like, why did that unpleasant exchange just happen? Yeah. You know, or why did I feel like that person was being condescending to me? And then I'll think, well, you know, naturally my mind might immediately go to, well, is is he treating me differently because I'm a woman? Um, you could go down the rabbit hole like that, you know, you really, Um, sometimes I do that where I'm like, um, is this person not to open this can of worms, but is this person racist? Is this person sexist? Does this person just not like me because, you know, my confidence is rubbing them the wrong way, um, which has definitely happened before. Um, yeah, if you focus on that all day, then it, it can be very tiring for sure. Yeah. You do, you treat other (laughs) people with respect, you know, have a healthy aware, uh, awareness and, um, self-awareness and, and reflect like to a healthy degree, whatever that is for you. And if people don't like it, F them. (laughs) Exactly. Don't let people like, literally, I know everyone says it. don't let people bring you down. Don't let one or two situations stop you from your goals. Use it to fuel your fire. Like use that bad interaction to just get better. Um, that's the best revenge is, is getting better. So yeah, I definitely, I would say never to let it get the best of you. 
Well, I think you're definitely um, achieving that. And um, I applaud you. This was a really great conversation. I really enjoyed hearing your background and what you do because I am not a femstem. So this is an area that is quite foreign to me. I love it. I love that you're branching out to all these different fields. Um, I, I'm definitely excited to hear about other women in different fields because I want to know, maybe I'll learn something from how they're handling you know, a situation in, in a different field. So I, I love what you're doing. I love that you're just getting women's stories um, and from different fields, aside from your own, like branching out of the law field and trying to understand what a girl in, in tech is doing or what someone in medicine is doing. I think that's the kind of community we need to continue to, to you know, bring awareness to and, and foster those relationships. Well, thank you for your support. Yeah. I do want to end the interview with a question that I hope I gave you a heads up that I like to ask people is have there, you mentioned one already, but have there been any books that made a big impact on you? Um, yeah, so definitely blink was one. Um, a lot of people read some of those like motivational books where the person's like explaining their routine for being super successful, like wake up at 5am. And those to me are like, they sound so motiv motivating, like, oh, this person wakes up at 5am and they only eat this, but everyone is so different. It's not going to work. So I like to read more about like behavioral patterns. Cause I feel like to be successful, you do really have to understand your behavior and others in any field. It doesn't necessarily need to be like, you know, in technology or even at work and in life that helps you just yeah. be an overall well-rounded successful person. So I love reading about human like behavioral patterns and, you know, how we perceive each other, why we act a certain way, because that was something I didn't get to study in college. So um, Blink is a really good one. Uh, when it comes to tech books, the site reliability playbook um, for anyone interested in getting into the SRE um, world was a really great one. It's published by O'Reilly. And I read that early on in my career. It was actually recommended to me by um, the VP at the company at the time. And he's like, I think you might find interest in this. I want you to order this and, and read it. And I just did it because it was a VP telling me what to do, but it really did. Like when I read it, I was like, wow, this is like all the other like tech text books I've been reading or just books in general are so cut and dry. And it made technology sound so fun and explain why you're doing things a certain way. What's the better way to do um, some of the everyday things that you do within software engineering and bridging that gap between developing and sort of deploying your, your applications. And that book ultimately kind of solidified what path I wanted to go down and I, I'm still there. So that's a really good read. It's actually a really short book. Um, very easy to read if anyone wants to um, learn more about the SRE world. Well, I'll check it out. I'm not making any promises. <laughs> <though. laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, it's honestly easy enough for like a non-technical person to read because they just give you some of the history and where the tech world is, is going, what direction of like building teams. So it's, it's really a great book for anyone. Well, thank you for the recommendation. Yeah. And for people that want to stalk you on Instagram, like I did, and that's how I found <laughs> you, you can find Nilo at, at she dev ops. So she D E V O P S. And that's on Instagram. Check her out. She's got a nice combination of fun stuff to look at and some techie stuff to look at. So, um, check her out. And thank you again for being the first guest on the FemStem series. Thank you for having me, Christina. Super excited to watch the rest of the series. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call the Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.